you didn't know it, but we're at war right now. You didn't know it, but well, maybe you did because maybe you've gone and gotten a coffee from one of the most popular coffee places in the world, Starbucks, and uh, you've seen their Christmas cups. Uh, Of course, their Christmas cups don't say Christmas. Their Christmas cups say Merry Coffee. Their Christmas cups say Happy Holidays. I wonder which holiday is so happy that it's got to get us excited to share something grand. You know that there is a war on Christmas and there is a war on religious language in this world. You know that because you have seen it. You know for sure that people go around saying things like, happy holidays. And happy holidays is this very, very politically correct way of talking about the holiday season. And when people say happy holidays rather than a more explicitly religious greeting, what it does is it seeks to diminish the spiritual reality of the season. It seeks to diminish and marginalize Christianity because there are people who want no part of Christianity. We know better. We know better. And so rather than just hear happy holidays and let it slide, we like to say things like, no, no, not just happy holidays, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas is of course a fantastic, phenomenal, traditional greeting, especially for American Christians. This is the primary American Christian greeting for this Christmas season. Merry Christmas. Because we understand that Jesus is the reason for the season. We understand that we must keep Christ in Christmas. We understand that there is a truth that the world needs to hear. And this is a phenomenal time of year to share the good news with people. But Merry Christmas is not the only appropriate traditional holiday greeting. In fact, our Christian brethren across the pond don't say Merry Christmas, they say Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. You might think, well, this has a strange, uh, strange sound to it. Happy Christmas, that sounds a little too much like Happy Holidays. But don't worry. Our brethren across the pond say Happy Christmas. Maybe you've read Harry Potter or seen the Harry Potter movies. Happy Christmas, Harry. Happy Christmas, Ron. All the kids will know what I'm talking about as they are familiar with this. Happy Christmas is just as good as Merry Christmas because Merry and Happy are synonymous. The point is that we're talking about Christmas here. But I think that the war on Christmas has been waged so vociferously over the last few years that even the word Christmas itself loses a little bit of its oomph, a little bit of its power, a little bit of its spiritual panache. And so I have a new recommendation. I have a new recommendation. Just as every great war is better waged with better weaponry, every time there's a war, if a new development in guns comes along or a new airplane comes along, we're always trying to find out what is the best and newest thing we can do. I have a recommendation. 
Instead of when somebody volleys at us, uh, happy holidays, don't just retort with Merry Christmas or even I'm happiest about Christmas. Instead, I think we can go one step farther. I think we can go one step deeper. I think we can get at the actual reason for the season and it is Jesus, but I think the way we describe it is by saying happy incarnation. Happy incarnation is the holiday greeting that I would like to get started here at the Glendale Christian Church. Happy incarnation. I'm wearing a carnation today. Uh, lots of people have asked me about it. Happy incarnation. A simple carnation flower that you wear in your lapel or that you wear in your pocket or that you give to somebody can start a conversation about why Jesus came to earth about how we know Jesus is the God-man, about how we can describe what is so happy, what is so merry about this Christmas season, it is the doctrine of the incarnation. The doctrine of the incarnation is the reason that we are happy, and so today, I would like to flex some of my philosophical, theological muscles and teach you in a robust way the doctrine of the incarnation, perhaps in a way that you are currently unfamiliar. The central claim of the doctrine of the incarnation is the deity of Christ. The idea is that Jesus is divine. That's our claim. That's what we are saying. Jesus is divine. This does not merely mean that Jesus is really good. This does not merely mean that Jesus is really special, somehow favored by the Father. No, no. it means that Jesus is God. It means that Jesus is God. The word incarnation itself literally means enfleshment. Enfleshment. As we take a small break from our When in Romans series to indulge in this Christmas run, this happy incarnation season, it's very appropriate that we talk about flesh. After all, flesh has been an important topic for us the last number of months. The Greek word sarks, is translated into the English word flesh. And sometimes our Bible translations will even go so far as to translate sarks as sinful nature. For we know that the flesh is sinful. And the idea behind the incarnation is that God became flesh. God entered flesh. The reason that it's incarnation, like carne, asada steak, carne is one of the words, um, carnate, incarnate. This whole idea of in the flesh. Incarnation literally means enfleshment. And the idea here is that Jesus is God in the flesh. God became a human being. He took on human flesh in order to save human beings. The doctrine of the incarnation says specifically that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Logos, became a human without losing any of his divinity. In order to understand the doctrine of the incarnation, we must rightly understand the doctrine of God. Most central to the doctrine of God is the idea of triunity, the Trinity. God is triune. There is only one God, and yet this one God is three persons. 
This seems confusing immediately, but if you think about it like this, if I point to a pair of shoes, I can rightly say that is one pair, or I can rightly say that is two shoes. I'm using different numerical language to pick out the same portion of reality. And so when we say things like, God is one being, we're picking out a certain portion of reality that is God. But when we say God is three persons, we're picking out the exact same portion of reality just using different linguistic terminology. Just like a deck of cards is one deck, four suits, 52 cards, the one God of the universe is three persons. The doctrine of the incarnation says that the second person, who's known as the eternal logos, became a human without losing any of his divinity. The three persons of the Trinity are easy to remember. Jesus talks about them regularly. Even when Jesus gives his great commission at the end of his life, just before his ascension, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And those are the three persons of the Trinity. The Father is the first person. The Son, or the Logos, is the second person. And the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Incarnation is very clear. The second person of the Trinity became a human for us. In fact, John 1, 1 through 4, lays it out very, very clearly. Listen to what the Gospel declares. In the beginning was the Logos, And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. When John penned his gospel, he used the word Logos. Our translations, of course, will define the Logos as the Word. You might be familiar with John 1.1 as, in the beginning was the Word, and that's completely appropriate because the Greek word Logos is best translated into English with our word, Word. So, the Logos is described in John 1, 1 through 4 in these ways. The Logos is the Word. The Word has this idea of divine reason. When Greek philosophers would use the word Logos, they used that word to describe the mind of God, the reason of God, divine rationality. And so our claim is that in the beginning was the word, the Logos, the divine rationality of God, and that means the Logos is eternal. It means that the Logos is part of the very nature of God. The Logos is the Son, Just as the Father is the Father and the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, the Logos is the Son of the Father. The Logos is described as the Creator. This should instantly evoke images of Genesis 1-1, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Of course, God created the heavens and the earth, but John 1-1 through 4 says, it was the Logos who created the heavens and the earth because the Logos is God. The Logos is part of the very nature of God and he's the creator. The Logos is also the author of life. In him was life. Now this should also bring to mind Acts 3.15 where Jesus is described as the author of life. 
And of course, the Logos is the image of God, which should bring to mind Genesis 1, 26 and 7, where God says, let us make humankind in our image. Male and female, let us make them. And so God made human beings in his own image. Male and female, he made them. The first person plural pronoun, we, is used in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. This is all very important because the Logos did not just remain in heaven, the Logos became flesh. This is what John 1, 14 and 17 says. The Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Do you know who the Logos is? The Logos is Jesus Christ. That's who the Logos is. The Logos is the eternal second person of the Trinity who is clothed in flesh and known to us as Jesus Christ. The Logos became flesh and brought with him grace and truth. This was the mission of Jesus Christ. And it means that Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. He's completely divine and he is completely human. That is a major claim of Christianity. We are not making a claim sort of like Hercules makes the claim to be a son of a God. In Greek and Roman mythology, in Greek mythology you have Zeus, the king of the gods, and he has sexual relations with a human woman, and the offspring is Hercules, who's a half god, half man. Jesus is not half anything. Jesus is 100% divine. Jesus is 100% human. Jesus is the God man. But you might be thinking, now wait a minute, wait a minute. How can you be 100% human and 100% divine at the same time? How, how does this make any sense? Why is this even possible? Why did God do this? How does this make sense? These are very, very important questions. These are questions that stump a lot of people. There are a lot of Christian men and women out there who don't know the reason for the season. They don't know the reason why Jesus came to earth. They don't know how to explain Jesus is God, and so they might be afraid to say happy incarnation because that might be an invitation to have a conversation about a Christian doctrine, and that might be scary to some folks. It doesn't need to be scary. It doesn't need to be scary at all. Allow scripture itself to give the reason why and the reason how this came about. Listen to what the Gospel of Luke, chapter one, verses 26 through 35 says. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's uh, name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? 
The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. This gives us a little bit of the how, a little bit of the how. God sends Gabriel to explain to Mary, the child that you will conceive and bear is going to be God, the Son of God. Call him Jesus. How will this happen? I haven't even been with my pledged husband yet. Don't worry. The Holy Spirit will come on you. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and therefore, the body within you will be created by God himself. Okay, but, but questions remain, questions remain. Why, 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 why does this happen? How, I, I still am worried about the how, but I, I need to know the why a little bit. Okay, well, let the scriptures give us more answers. Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 23 says this. This is how the birth of Jesus and Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. God comes down to become one of us. How does this happen? Well, the Holy Spirit is how this happens. Why does this happen? Well, to save us from our sins. The reason for the incarnation is actually pretty simple, even though we still question how and why. I remember being a very young person questioning how and why. When I was a child, I didn't go to church regularly, but my parents made sure we went to church on Christmas and Easter, and before one Easter, I went two weeks in a row. And I heard this old preacher man say, Jesus was the son of God. I know I heard it. I remember clear as day. Jesus is the son of God. But then the next week we went and Jesus was called God. He said, Jesus is God. And I said, nope, nope. I was a young person, literally in fourth grade. I was 10 or 11 years old, and I knew that this was ridiculous. I did not believe this at all. And so I went up to that preacher man afterwards, and I said, last week you told me Jesus was the Son of God. This week you told me Jesus is God. How can you be your own son? And I thought that was a really good question. It was a serious question, and I wanted a serious answer. Do you know the answer I got instead? Oh, kid, these, these, these things are beyond us. You just have to accept them by faith. There will be things that you can never understand. And so do you know what I did? I washed my hands of faith. And I said, oh, okay. Well, if, if it can't be understood, I don't want any part of it. 
if I can't figure it out, I don't want to be involved. And oh, I put up a fight every time my parents tried to take me to church, so much so that it eventually got to the point where they said, if you don't want to go, you don't have to go. And I didn't go to church because it did not make any sense to me. In fact, the whole notion of Jesus being God struck me as, wrong way, sorry, struck me as illogical. Jesus seemed to be both created and not created. Isn't that contradictory? We say things like, Jesus, the eternal logos, but then we also say things like, Jesus was conceived. Well, now, which is it? Was Jesus conceived or is Jesus eternal? It seemed really contradictory to me, and I thought, because of contradiction, it must not be true. In fact, famous atheists today advance this line of reasoning. They say, oh, silly Christians, silly Christians. Say Jesus was created, say Jesus was the creator. They can't get their minds straight. They don't know what they're talking about. Christianity is silly. Jesus seems contradictory. But we know that the body of Jesus was created, sure, but the soul of Jesus is eternal. That's what we're claiming here. The eternal second person of the Trinity who has always existed, the Logos, had everything he needed to become a human being except a body. And then the Holy Spirit fashioned a body for him and the Logos entered that body. So the body of Jesus was created, yes, but the soul of Jesus was not created. Well, this doesn't seem too hard to break apart, but what we have to do is is understand that there are important distinctions that must be made. To rightly understand and explain the doctrine of the incarnation, we need three critical distinctions and four important explanatory phrases. A distinction is merely looking at something in a different way. And so here's a distinction. I can say the body of Jesus Christ was created and I can say Jesus Christ is eternal. And you might think that's contradictory because created and eternal don't go together. But there's a distinction. And so I need to look at something a different way. When I look at who Jesus is, the eternal Logos, he's not created, he's the creator. He's the author of life. He is the eternal Logos. But when I look at the body of Jesus, that most certainly was created. Because flesh cannot be eternal. God does not have a body, God is spirit. So of course the body had to be created and so when I talk about Jesus being created, all I'm referring to is the body and so we must be very precise in our language. The body of Jesus Christ was created. The soul of Jesus Christ was not because the soul of Jesus Christ is God himself. And so I'm going to make three important distinctions and then I'm gonna follow it up with four important explanatory phrases. Allow the wonders of analytical philosophical theology to help us glory in God all the more. The doctrine does make sense, let's figure out how. Critical distinction number one. We must make a distinction between individual essence and kind essence. Oh, I'm using big words here, but I think we can all follow along. An individual essence is everything you are. It's the total composite of your being. So my individual essence would be something like a six foot four inch preacher who is married to Kim, has four kids, really like Superman, and whose hair is going as gray as his suit. Okay, so everything about me, 
Just list everything about me, that's my individual essence. Your individual essence is every single thing about you. Every single thing about you. Physical, non-physical, mental, characteristics, traits, qualities, characteristics, every single thing about you. That's your individual essence. Now this is very different from a kind essence. A kind essence is the group you belong to. Which group do you belong to? I'll, I'll just answer that for you, humankind. So, kind essence, humankind. If you had a frog, that frog would be part of froggy kind. If you had a cat, that cat would be part of feline kind. If you had a dog, that dog would be part of canine kind. What group are you in? That's all kind essence means. Hey, what is the essence of your kind? Oh, you're a human kind. Oh, okay, a human being. That's very different from a feline kind. So all we have to do is make this dis easy distinction. A cat has an individual essence, but is part, of uh, is part of feline kind. You have an individual essence, but you're part of humankind. That's one distinction. Keep that in mind. Here's another distinction. Distinguish between common properties and essential properties. Common properties are just characteristics that most in a particular kind are gonna have. Here's an example. Most human beings are between three feet tall and seven feet tall. That's a common property. Most human beings, if we lined up everyone in this church, almost everybody would be between three feet tall and seven feet tall. I don't think we've got anyone taller than seven feet tall, but if Shaquille O'Neal joined us for church this morning, then we would have somebody taller than seven feet tall. He still counts as human, even though he doesn't have that common trait. We've got lots of babies. They're shorter than three feet tall. You don't have to be between three feet tall and seven feet tall to be a human. That's just a common property. But an essential property is a characteristic that you must have in order to be a member of that given kind. So you are part of humankind. You're a human being. What do you have to have to be a human being? Really, you only need two things, and here they are. You have to have a hominid body you gotta have a body, and you gotta have a soul made in the image of God. That's what makes a human a human. That's what makes a human a human. Now, you could even die, and your soul could be separated from your hominid body, but every human being who has ever existed has at least at one time had a human body. Every human being alive has had a hominid body and has had a soul made in the image of God, and that's just how it is. Those are the Essential properties for humankind. What's well, an easy distinction? Stuff that most have, stuff you gotta have. Well, there's one more distinction. The distinction between being fully human and merely human. Somebody is fully human if one has all the essential properties to be in the humankind. So imagine a big circle on the floor and it says humankind. Now, if you have all the essential properties like a hominid body and a soul made in the image of God, you can stand fully inside the circle that says fully human. I am fully human because I have a hominid body and I have a soul made in the image of God. It doesn't matter what my common properties are. I have all the essential properties to be a human guy and I am, okay. But being merely human means that one only has the essential properties to be in the humankind. Did you know that if I am fully human, I might be merely human? But if I am merely human, I'm definitely fully human. If I'm merely human, then that says, I'm fully human, but that's my only group. Now this is where it gets weird. 
I'm gonna claim that Jesus is fully human but not merely human. I'm gonna tell you that he has all the essential properties to be in humankind and he has essential properties to be in a different kind. That's what I'm telling you. He's fully human but he's not merely human. He's human plus. Jesus is superhuman. So, Jesus Christ is an individual who has the essential properties necessary to belong to both divine kind and to humankind. As such, he's fully human, but he's not merely human, he's also God Almighty. Okay, that's what the doctrine says, but how do I actually say that to a person? Because that's a lot of stuff. What do I say to a person, Andrew? Like, if I pick up one of these carnation flowers at the back, which I encourage everybody to do, and I wear it in my jacket or on my lapel, or hand it to a person, and they say, hey, what's with the flower? You can say, oh, happy incarnation. Or if somebody says, Merry Christmas, you could say, Happy Incarnation. Or if somebody says, Happy Holidays, you could say, Happy Incarnation. And you know what they will do when you say Happy Incarnation? Oh, what's that all about? They'll ask, and you better have something to say. Well, you can always say, why don't you come to church with me next week, and we'll learn even more about it. We're learning about the Incarnation all month, but this is what you can say when somebody asks, well, what's the Incarnation all about? Here are, th- are four explanatory phrases. Can you remember this? I think so. Jesus Christ is one person with two natures. He's got two full and complete and distinct natures, human and divine. So Jesus Christ is one person with two distinct and complete natures, human and divine, that's easy. Jesus Christ is one person, but he's got a human nature and a divine nature. Well, that's easy. Emmanuel, God with us, God became a human. Easy to remember, easy to remember. But there's another phrase that's important also. And this phrase says, the logos is the rational soul of Jesus, which is possible since mankind is made in the image of God. The logos, the eternal second person of the Trinity, that's who became human. And it's possible for God to become human because humankind is made in God's image. Remember Genesis 1, 26 and seven, let us make humankind in our image. Jesus, the eternal Logos, already had everything necessary for full and complete membership into humankind except a body. And so the Holy Spirit whipped him up a body and Jesus jumped right in that body and boom, now Jesus is fully divine, which he's always been, and now he's also fully human. So the eternal Logos is the one who became human. That's easy to remember. Here's explanatory phrase three. The divine aspects of Jesus Christ were largely subliminal during the incarnation, which is necessary for Jesus to have a typical human experience. Jesus is God in a body, but Jesus did not do all of the God stuff that God can do all of the time. The God stuff to Jesus was subliminal. That means Jesus could say things like, I don't know when I'm coming back, only the Father knows that. Because Jesus doesn't know everything at the same time when he's in his human body. Do you know why? Because a human brain limits how much you can know at one time. So the subconscious of Jesus, just like your subconscious, was far more vast than your waking consciousness. But whereas your subconscious and mine is limited, the subconscious of Jesus Christ is the unlimited, all-knowing logos of the universe. But... Just like you can't pull out anything you want from your own subconscious, somebody has to remind you of something. Example, quick, what was your phone number when you were 12? Now you're remembering. 466-4665, okay, great. 
You weren't thinking about that 10 seconds ago though. I coaxed something out of your subconscious. I'm telling you that the subconscious of Jesus knows everything, but the waking consciousness of Jesus doesn't. Of course, once he gets his resurrection body, he knows everything at the same time. So here's the last phrase we gotta know. Jesus ceded the privileges of being God without relinquishing the position of being God. This means that Jesus never stopped being God. The Logos has always been God, and he never stops being God when he becomes human. He just adds humanity to himself. It's sort of like Jesus taking his God powers and putting them in his pocket and saying, you know what? I'm gonna put my God powers in my pocket and I'm not gonna use them because I gotta be a regular human guy. If I wasn't a regular human guy, then it, it, I wouldn't be able to relate to my people. I, I'm a regular human guy. It's sort of like if you were gonna fight Chuck Norris, Chuck Norris would beat you up. But if I said, Chuck, can I add something to you? Can I add a pair of handcuffs behind your back? Ooh, do you think you could beat up Chuck Norris? No, he would just kick you then. And he'd still beat you up. But what I'm telling you is, a pair of handcuffs make it such that Chuck Norris can't punch you. When Jesus takes on a body, it makes it such that he can't exercise all his God powers at the same time because a body inherently limits him. He went from being omnipresent to present in one place at one time. And so, what can we do with all of this? Well, I think we can recognize scripture agrees. Philippians 2 says Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And Titus 2, 11 through 13 says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's what I want you to do this week, if you would. Would you tell people that we've got good news? Would you tell people that God became a man to save mankind? Would you tell people that as a result of God becoming man to save mankind, we can see God more clearly? And because of God becoming mankind to save mankind, not only can we see him more clearly, but God can sympathize with us. That's what Chris is gonna preach on next week. The week after, I'm gonna preach about how we can see God more clearly. And right before Christmas, I'm gonna preach about how God became man to save mankind through the atonement, which is only possible because of the incarnation. So would you please say happy incarnation? Would you please say it? Not just Merry Christmas. Not just Merry Christmas. Happy incarnation. Would you say it? Would you explain it? I'll put these notes on the website so you can go back and refer to them. I'll load them up tomorrow. Invite people to church to hear about it. Happy Incarnation, oh, what's that about? Oh, yeah, yeah, the Incarnation. It reminds me of the doctrine of the Incarnation. Hey, would you like to come to church with me on Sunday and learn all about it? Oh, you would? Great. This is a way to truly share the reason for the season.